Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, a federal judge upholds the religious liberty claim of 17 New York health care workers who have refused to be vaccinated. It's crunch time for striking Kellogg's workers. And Indigenous People's Day protesters call for climate justice outside the White House. Good evening. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. A federal judge in Utica, New York, sided today with 17 health care workers who object to New York State's vaccine mandate for health workers on religious grounds. He granted their request for an injunction that stops the state from enforcing the policy for those who claim a religion-based objection. Unlike other judges who have heard similar cases about vaccine mandates, Judge David Hurd concluded, quote, the public interest lies with enforcing the guarantees enshrined in the Constitution in federal anti-discrimination law and not the wider public health. The healthcare workers say they object to taking the vaccines because they all employ fetal cell lines derived from procured abortion in testing, development or production. Governor Kathy Hochul has vowed to appeal the ruling. Whether the healthcare workers' religious beliefs include a prohibition on needlessly risking their lives and the lives of their patients remains unknown. According to Hochul, 85.1% of New York State residents 18 and up have received at least one vaccine dose and 72.2% of all New Yorkers have been vaccinated. However, Brooklyn Nets basketball star Kyrie Irving is not one of them and now he's out of work, at least for the time being. Earlier today, the Nets announced that Irving has been barred from all team games and practices until he gets vaccinated. Under a New York City mandate, no one is allowed to enter a sports gym or arena without proof of vaccination. If Irving misses the full season, he will be docked about $16 million out of his $35 million annual salary. This is Brooklyn Nets general manager, Sean Marks. Kyrie's made it clear that he he has a choice in this matter, and um, it's ultimately going to be up to him where he what he decides. You know, we respect the fact that he has a choice and he can make his own and right to choose. Uh, as as again, right now, what's best for the organization is the path that that we're taking. And uh, I don't want to speak for Kyrie. You know, at the right time, I'm sure he will address his feelings and and you know what the path may be for him. New York State's $2.1 billion excluded workers fund, which was established this spring to provide pandemic relief for hard hit undocumented workers will no longer accept applications. The state has approved $1.2 billion for 120,000 applicants, and the remaining money will be allocated by the end of the month, according to Governor Hochul. In other news, a nationwide strike of Kellogg's workers has entered its eighth day. The workers are trying to prevent the company from imposing a two-tier wage and benefit system that would pay newer workers substantially less than veteran employees. Kellogg's is the maker of iconic breakfast cereals, including Frosted Flakes, Rice Krispies, and Fruit Loops. These are striking workers on the picket line in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We'll talk more about the upsurge in strikes across the country later in the show with labor journalist Joe Emanuel Hall. 
And finally, yesterday in Washington, D.C., more than 135 people were arrested outside the White House in an action to mark Indigenous Peoples Day and call for climate justice. More climate protests are planned in Washington as a part of a mobilization called People versus Fossil Fuels, a week of demonstrations to demand that President Joe Biden stop approving fossil fuel projects and declare a national climate emergency. That first clip was singing, drums, and dancing in front of the White House fence as police prepared to make arrests. Then you heard an indigenous woman cry out for help as she was being arrested by the Secret Service. We'll be back with our first guest after this short break. We were all wounded. We were all wounded at Wounded Knee by Redbone, and you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York City. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org, and you can find our October print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city and in public libraries, independent bookstores, and many other venues. Joining me this evening is the Indies Associate Editor, Amber Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be with you and all of our listeners on 99.5 and streaming on WBAI.org. Thanks, Amba, and happy National Farmers Day. We'll talk more about food and the people who grow it and harvest it later in the show. But for our first segment, we're delighted to have the Independence Ted Ham back on the show. Ted dives fearlessly into the muck of New York City politics and calls it like it is. 
You'll have a new piece up on independent.org later this evening about presumptive mayor Eric Adams and the latest developments in his long-running relationship with the real estate industry. Ted, welcome to WBAI 99.5 FM. Thanks, John. Good to be with you and Amba. You bet. So, uh, first of all, can you uh, uh, sketch out uh, the the main uh, part of your um, of your new article and and what sort of what's the latest with uh, Eric Adams and uh, his real estate buddies as he prepares to become the city's next mayor? Sure. Well, he has really been an al- a close ally of the real estate industry since becoming borough president. In he won in 2013 with almost no opposition, and then took over in 2014. And uh, soon after, he issued his declaration, uh, Build Baby Build. Um, that was groundbreaking ceremony near BAM, um, where de Blasio was announcing his affordable housing plan. Uh, Adams came there to, set, to make that statement, build higher, build larger, yada, yada. Um, <clears throat> it's basically his... Um, uh, his declaration to the real estate industry that he was on board with all of the high-rise luxury towers that have been going up all around uh, BAM and extending all the way to Borough Hall and completely transforming downtown Brooklyn as anyone who's driven down um, Flatbush Extension or walked there around that area recently can attest to. It's endless amounts of construction and high-rise buildings and, and so on, and that's sort of the um, the future that uh, we can expect from an Adams administration is more of that um, type of development. Um, promises of affordable housing, perhaps, but uh, it's always the devil's always in the details. So that's why I'm sketching out in the article um, that you know he's he's got that track record. He's got real estate money flowing through his campaign. Um, is he really going to be the working class uh, advocate, blue collar mayor that he champion, fancies himself to be? Um, is is that what uh, we can expect, or can we just expect a lot more um, un, unattractive in most people's eyes, as far as I can, as far as I know, uh, high rise luxury condos going up all over town? Right, Ted, and talk a little bit about. Um who he's been appealing to over the summer since his, you know, um, perspective win. Sure. Well, he already had the, um, many of the leading Brooklyn developers on board. Uh, I'm thinking of, um, Walentis from family that, that built Dumbo and now has the Domino sugar site also has that building, uh, whole foods in it near, near BAM. Um, and, uh, Hochia from Bedford Armory, um, you know, that's been an issue that the, the promises that Lori Cumbo, the city council person who was a big Adams supporter and ally, those stories have been in circulation for the last couple of weeks about the promises that were made to the community that won't be delivered on in terms of the access to the swimming pool and the gym at the, the armory and so on. And that was actually in writing <laughs> that, they were kind of concealing <clears throat> um, and Adams was on board with uh, Lori Cumbo at the time. So he, he, Adams is now getting as a beneficiary of the of donations from that developer. 
um, Industry City and so on. But then since uh, he won, he has been uh, cashing in from the Hamptons to Martha's Vineyard uh, and other places, um, gaining the big money real estate donations uh, from all the, the recognizable names, the Rudins and the Dursts and so on. Uh, you know, so he's business as usual. Um, despite what he claims, it's he's really going to be um, advancing the the real estate industry's agenda. Um, I'd be I, I, I would be shocked if he does otherwise. <laughs> well, he, he has made a point of highlighting his uh, desire to uh, build more affordable housing. It's very prominent on his website. Uh, can you talk a little bit about? that and and um it, is that entirely uh fluff or is, is there some sort of initiatives uh at work there as well well he's he's saying he's the first item on his agenda on the website is uh up zoning wealthier areas uh and as we've seen in the soho rezoning the indies covered todd fine has been doing lots of good stuff uh the the, the promises really aren't uh, concrete about what a of the affordable number of affordable housing units that will be delivered. Um, and even, even then it's uh, less than 1150 over 20 years in, so in the Soho plan. Um, so, you know, you're not talking about a huge number there. And then if you look at the, just the, the intensity of the fight in the neighborhood in Soho, that's going to be replicated elsewhere. Um, these are wealthy neighborhoods that they're trying to upzone. Um, and so, you know, that, uh, as I say in the article, Adams may score some points politically from that because it looks, he'll look like he's, he's going up against uh, NIMBY uh, rich people. Um, but, uh, you know, the real beneficiaries in those upzonings are the, the luxury condo developers who um, build the, get to build higher um, and the expensive units that they'd say subsidized as portable units and then there's that whole debate about how affordable they are and all that, all, all the other stuff that comes into play. We're really not talking about a huge number of units here. So um, I, don't, I don't even see how that um, can pan out um, given the obstacles that he's going to face. And could you talk a little bit about the importance of who uh, Adams appoints to lead the city planning commission? Yeah. And, sure. and if you have any ideas on who you think that might be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's one thing I, <laughs> I'm not so in the loop about who the, the, the players are, I'm just, but I'm pretty confident it could be somebody who's uh, on, on good terms with the real estate industry. Uh, I mean, that is, it, it is sort of a, it's it, most people recognize the fact that the mayor appoints the school's chancellor uh, and the NYPD commissioner. And those are the two most important um, appointments that the mayor will make, but city planning is, very important and i would say it's third uh and when de blasio came in he picked a veteran real estate industry insider carl weisbrod um who managed trinity um, churches made massive portfolio in lower manhattan and so on been connected to the central park i'm sorry the the, um Times square rezoning uh and so you know i went back quite a ways with the real estate industry and it was showed that de blasio was really um not going to rock the boat. Um, and Marissa Lago has, has succeeded um, Wise Broad. She's been kind of low profile. 
Um, so, you know, I, I would, it's hard to say. I mean, I guess in all of these appointments with, the, with Adams, the question is going to be how independent they will be of his um, control. He doesn't seem like someone who's going to delegate uh, to, and, let, and allow people to operate independently of him. He seems more like someone who's going to make sure everyone's on board with what he wants. Um, so, you know, that's, I don't, as I say, I'm, I would bet good money that it's his, whoever he picks is going to be someone that you know, is certainly on good terms with the real estate industry. We'll be watching that. Uh, we'll be watching that closely. We'll have to uh, wrap it up for now. Uh, but uh, Ted, uh, Ted Ham of the Independent, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening and continuing our ongoing coverage as we watch to see how uh, uh, Eric Adams will uh, run his uh, new administration. Okay, thanks a lot. You bet. So, <laughs> thank you, Ted. And again, uh, his latest will be up on Independent.org a little later this evening. And uh, we'll be back with uh, our next guest after this short break, and we'll be talking about the upsurge in strikes and labor militancy all across the United States. by NYC by Interpol. You're listening to the Independent News Hour, and I'm Amber Gergarian here with John Tarleton. Before we continue with our second segment, I would like to encourage everyone who can do so on this Giving Tuesday to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. So again, you can call that number 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. And it really, truly is listeners like you who keep us going. So every penny counts. That's right. Keep the community and community radio shows like this are only possible with the generous support of listeners like yourself. Not only this show, but 168 hours a week, every week of the year of non-corporate programming of news and public affairs shows that you won't hear on any other station, including uh, National Pentagon Radio. And um, also, you have lots of great uh, cultural programming on WBAI, and it's all made possible by listeners like yourself. 212-209-2950. That's the phone number. Again, 212-209-2950. Or go straight to give number two, WBAI.org. And you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month and be eligible for all sorts of awesome premiums. Or you can make a one-time donation. But 
whatever you do, it, it all helps keep shows like this and so many other shows on the air. Speaking of non-corporate programming, we're going to turn back to some of that right now. Over the past year and a half, the U.S. has seen a broad upsurge in labor strikes and unionization efforts. Joining us to talk about the historical context around this movement and some of the current strikes happening is Joe Demanuel Hall, an NYC-based organizer with Labor Notes, a media and organizing project that has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in labor movement since 1979. Joe, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. We're, we're happy to have you with us. So first, let's jump right into to what current strikes are happening on the ground across the U.S. right now. Can, can you tell us can you tell us what's going on and where? Sure. Yeah, there's there's a bunch going on. So I'll try and do it quickly. Uh, and forgive me if there are a couple that I missed because there are a wide variety of them in a, a bunch of different sizes. So a few of, of the, the prominent ones that are going on right now are. Um, uh, pretty recently, 1,400 Kellogg cereal workers with uh, the BCTGM union uh, went out on strike. Uh, these are cereal workers, uh, like prepared cereal workers in Nebraska, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Uh, so that's a pretty recent development on the heels of earlier Nabisco strike with the same union on the heels of earlier in this year, the Frito-Lay strike, the same union, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um there are over 2,000 healthcare workers uh, with the Communications Workers Union uh, on strike in Buffalo right now, uh, in Buffalo, New York. The longest strike in Massachusetts history is going on right now um, in, uh, in Massachusetts uh, against Tenet Hospital. There are about 800 nurses with the Massachusetts Nurses Association who are on strike. In a, Sorry, yeah. do you know how long that strike is? Oh, it's been going on oh since uh, early this year. I don't have the date off the top of my head. Um, and how does this uh, upsurge of strikes uh, fit in the context of what we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years with the uh, labor movement, which has frequently been uh, under attack by the bosses and, and big corporations? You know, it's complicated because there's a lot of labor activity going on right now, and there's a lot of stuff on the horizon, which we should talk about, too. Um, things that will be coming up, uh, big strikes, uh, potentially at John Deere with the, the film and television industry, um, at, uh, Kaiser uh, Healthcare, nonprofit healthcare. But still, uh, and especially right now, with, without those on the horizon coming up, um, there, the, the level of labor activity in the United States is relatively low, even, uh, by historic levels compared to, say, the 1980s, which we don't typically consider to be the heyday of union activity in the, the wake of the, the PACO strike, for example, that, that Reagan defeated. Um, but it is, uh, the past few years have been really exciting, uh, labor wise. And I think it's a combination of there's more going on. Uh, than there have been in the past couple of decades. And there are a lot more people paying attention for a variety of reasons. There, uh, there's something in the air. More labor activists are interested in what's going on in other workplaces. And there's also something about the general public that's paying attention more to what's happening in the labor movement and with strikes in particular than, say, seven years ago, I think. And explain a little bit um, better, or not better, more, um, the 
the the lack of labor awareness of labor activity uh, since from the 70s until basically now explain how that has to do with deindustrialization and also laws in different states that make it really difficult for people to organize sure yeah so uh the labor movement has taken a lot of hits in the past decades this is no secret the rate of unionization in the united states has steadily gone down. Uh, this is due to a combination of a bunch of things. I think there's deindustrialization plays a part in it. Deregulation plays another big part in it. So on the deindustrialization side, uh, many uh, formerly unionized manufacturing jobs ran away to the southern United States from the industrial Midwest, and also uh, many of those jobs were outsourced. There's still a lot of manufacturing workers in the United States, actually, and numerically not that many fewer than there were during the, say, the 80s, but these workers uh, have a lower rate of unionization um, and for a lot of different reasons. The deregulation side, for example, uh, the deregulation of the trucking industry in the late 70s uh, really, really hit the Teamsters Union, which we'll be talking about a little bit more later. Uh, and going from the, the National Master Freight Agreement, which was this gigantic freight trucking uh, contract that covered hundreds of thousands of workers, uh, went almost overnight, really, or you know, uh, over the period of a couple of years, just dropped precipitously and uh, helped contribute to the increase of non-union trucking in the United States that's largely done by independent contractors and owner-operators. Uh, who were legally prohibited from forming unions. And, of course, the legal situation has not made it uh, any easier to unionize in the United States. So really, I think it's a combination of uh, unfavorable laws and big structural economic changes that have, have played together to, to lower the rates of unionization, along with uh, trends within the economy. Uh, I think that there are there's been a lot of hay made about the increase of independent contractor status uh, in the United States of temp agencies and all that. And I think that's a contributing factor, but there are a lot of people in the United States who uh, say that they want unions uh, and in their private sector workplaces and who are unable to form them or are, face a lot of obstacles trying to form them for a lot of different reasons, whether through the franchise structure of something like McDonald's or the really high turnover and anti-union stance of a company like Amazon. Right. And there's a, a poll that's taken every year on the favorability of unions in, in among the American public. And this year's poll results came in at around 66 or 67 percent favorable uh, view, and that's uh, about the highest in the last 50 years. I think there was one moment in the last 50 years where it hit about that level, but otherwise it's at a high point in, in recent uh, history. And that obviously would include a lot of Republicans and independents if you're talking about 66 percent uh, approval rating of the idea of unions uh, now, of course, only about 10.5% of Americans are in unions. So there's obviously a huge gulf between what maybe people want and what they're able to uh, obtain. But another thing I wanted to ask you about sort of this upsurge in uh, militancy is what is the role of the, the pandemic been? What have workers experienced that might have sh uh, shifted uh, class consciousness or just shifted their sense of, of – of their own self-worth and, and not wanting to put up with crummy jobs anymore, or if they were going to work in 
grueling jobs uh, insist on being uh, treated and paid better? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think the way that I think about the pandemic is that the the situations that we're experiencing now, the circumstances we're experiencing now, were not for the most part created by the pandemic, but were exacerbated by them. Right. The the extreme uh, issues that many workplaces, including places where people are on strike or about to go on strike around understaffing predated the pandemic. I mean, talk to healthcare workers before the pandemic, they will say they were understaffed. Some of the biggest public fights from healthcare unions over the last six years or so have been around uh, staffing legislation in New York State, Massachusetts, California, right? Um, But they were exacerbated by the pandemic. The issues around uh, very profitable employers demanding concessions from uh, from workers and seeking to to create new tiers of lower paid workers predates the pandemic, right? This happened uh, after 2008 and before. Um, and But I think what we've seen is a combination of those things being exacerbated, as well as uh, people experiencing this uh, circumstance where they're being told that this this whole essential worker trope right outside of my window in Brooklyn, people banging pots and pans. But then employers, when it comes time to negotiate contracts, when it comes time to talk about wage increases, you know, people were uh, in in many places lucky if they got five percent hazard pay increases during the pandemic. Which is, uh, I mean, it's not nothing, but it's not. I, I think we can certainly agree it's not what people deserve. It's not much and, for risking your life. Right. I mean, it's not much for a year-to-year normal wage increase when you take uh, inflation into account, right, as a cost of living increase, not to mention uh, risking your life in a warehouse or a hospital or whatever, uh, working. And so I think pe- there's there's that. And then this this sort of general, uh, I think like in what I would call an anti-establishment mood that has uh, become more pervasive in the United States over the past decade that I think really contributes to this. People are really pissed off at their employers uh, in really serious ways. They were before the pandemic and the pandemic really exacerbated that. Um, and I think that you see, I've seen really two different divergent paths around this, around the way that workers have responded to the pandemic. The first is that uh, most of the strike activity that we're seeing is among uh, the unionized workplace. And I'll come back to that. But I think the reason that we don't see as much of that in, the, in non-union workplaces, though there has been some during the pandemic, is because the generalized approach to resisting your boss in a country where the workplace is, uh, has such a low union density is just to quit, right? You don't fight your boss. You don't get together and take a collective response to your boss. You just quit. And we see that happening right now. I mean, the, there, are, there were more people who quit their jobs in August, uh, this past August, than any time in the past few years, really. And uh, that's because, you know, people are pissed off and they decide, okay, well, I'm just going to leave. And there are economic factors that make it easier for people to do that, um, that uh, give workers structural power that they're taking advantage of. But the real, most of the collective action, I think, that we have seen during the pandemic, and especially right now, sort of like, quote unquote, post-pandemic, has been in the unionized 
private sector in particular. These big strikes, Kellogg's, uh, the the Buffalo Healthcare, Massachusetts Healthcare, the Alabama Miners. The, there was recently a one-day uh, telecom strike in with uh, CWA in California. These are all in the private sector, and the big ones that are coming up are also in the private sector. John Deere, the film and television, the 60,000 film and television workers with IATSE, and uh, the 40,000 uh, Kaiser healthcare workers around the country who are potentially going to go on strike. And let's talk about this John Deere upcoming strike. Um, uh, we understand that there's been some difficulty between uh, some of the union members and some of the union leadership as far as the strike authorization goes. And, and we're seeing more demands within the UAW United Auto Workers, which is the union that represents um, the John Deere workers. And in the, another big old union, the Teamsters, um, where the members are calling for democratization. Could you talk a little bit more about their demands, the issues, and how a more democratized union has better, really just better effects? Sure. Yeah. So there, uh, there's some real big parallels in those unions. And I think there are also some, some commonalities between the, say, the John Deere strike and some of the things that people have been speaking up about in the, the already happening strikes. For example, at Kellogg, where, uh, the, the the slogan they're using is the future is not for sale. And it has to do with these multiple tiers that people are experiencing. The contract that John Deere vote, uh, workers, the 10,000 of them uh, in the UAW, just voted down. Um, one of the major reasons that they voted it down was because it uh, effectively eliminated or seriously diminished, it's a little bit hard to know, uh, pensions for, for new hires, uh, basically got rid of them already, uh, post 1997, uh, people who got hired after 1997 have uh, received, I think about a third of what, uh, previous workers had received in pensions. And so they've been working really hard throughout the pandemic, as many people have, and they've seen this company become more profitable than it has ever been in recent memory. Um, they're set to, uh, in 2013, their previous recent record, they, the company John Deere was set to make uh, $3.5 billion. This year, they're on track to do somewhere between 5.7 and 5.9 billion. So really just like skyrocketing. And at the same time, they're, they're offering uh, fairly minimal wage increases and uh, asking or asking, demanding uh, concessions. And the UAW leaders, uh, the the local and national leaders of the UAW who bargained this contract, uh, those who spoke up about it recommended the contract to say that they that it should be accepted, and it was overwhelmingly voted down this past Sunday. Uh, and there's some really really great coverage in Labor Notes from my uh, colleague Jonah Furman, who's been working really closely on this. Um, and so this ties in with a, a broader fight uh, within the UAW and with the labor movement uh, around democracy within the union. Um, the really explosive corruption scandals within the UAW over the past couple of years uh, have led to a, a court-ordered referendum within the union uh, to allow that would allow members to vote directly vote for the top officers of their union. This is uh, while it seems like it might be a, a pretty common democratic practice within the labor movement, it is actually incredibly uncommon. There are very few unions in the United States where if you are a union member, you get to vote for the top officers of your national union. The Teamsters are one of the other ones after a long anti-corruption fight that culminated in the 1980s with. Uh, the reform group Teamsters for a Democratic Union helping to win this. Um, 
the the laborers union i believe is one of the other ones uh and now uaw members uh later this month have the opportunity to vote on this and this is potentially really important because the same people who negotiated and encouraged this uh deal this john deere contract that people voted down could be up for election uh for the, for direct elections for the first time ever in the history of the united auto workers union and just for reference the the guy who negotiated the last John Deere contract uh, went to jail for corruption and just got out, uh, wasn't directly elected by the members, right? There was no opportunity to do that. You could imagine people who are really upset about this and about this deal uh, could uh, decide to take that energy to try to, to change the top dogs of the UAW. Um, and there's a, a really great uh, group, uh, United uh, Unite All Workers for Democracy, UAWD, within the UAW, that's working to uh, try and push this referendum and push for democratic reforms within the UAW. Um, on the on the Teamsters front, uh, because this is also coming up, another big election that's happening. Um, the uh, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, one of the largest unions in the country. Uh, I believe 1.3 million members is uh, is currently right now ballots have gone out for a national election. Um, this is uh, the first uh, post Jimmy Hoffa Jr. election, Jimmy Hoffa Jr. being president of the Teamsters Union since uh, 1998, 1999. Uh, and so he's retiring. It's uh, going to be his successors versus this group of reformers many of whom are motivated by the same anti-concessionary uh, currents that we see within the UAW and within other unions. Um, there was, in 2018, there was a highly unpopular contract at UPS. Uh, UPS is the largest uh, private sector contract and uh, uh, reformers coming out of the, the vote no movement around that are trying to take over the union to, to push for democratic reforms within their union. And uh, by the end of this year, we very, very well may see uh, some reformers, democratic reformers in the leadership of the Teamsters. Well, that's something to watch out for. Something we want to talk about but didn't was also Teamsters' current um, efforts to to unionize uh, uh, some, some Amazon workers. So I encourage all of our listeners to look into that. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining us from Labor Notes. Labor Notes does great coverage on on the labor movement, stuff that we need to be looking out for that lacks in mainstream media. So thanks again. And uh, we're going to move on here, but but uh, keep keep on the good work. Thank you so much.
Johnny Appleseed by Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. I'm your host, John Tarleton. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm broadcasting from East Hampton, Massachusetts, and I'm joined once again by our co-host, Amr Gagarian, who is in New York City. Thanks, John. It's great to be here in New York City. Do you want to fill our listeners in about why you're in Massachusetts, though? Yeah, I'm visiting a local farm this week, about four hours from New York City. After I finish my uh, indie responsibilities uh, each day, I log off and uh, go out in the late afternoon and uh, pick apples for a couple of hours. It's uh, good to be back on the land. And back in the day, I used to go up to Vermont every fall and pick apples. I also used to hobo around the country and worked in other migrant harvests from Maine to Colorado, Virginia uh, to Wisconsin. Uh, And what, what was that like, hoboing around the country? Well, with the with the farm work, it was often grueling, but I met a lot of interesting people, and I also gained a lifelong appreciation for the farmers and farm workers who bring our food, uh, bring us our food, including smaller unconventional farmers who try to break away from the dominant corporate system of uh, agriculture that we live under. And speaking of that, it is mid October, and all across the land, the bounty of the harvest is being reaped. And next month, we'll join family and friends to celebrate this with. Thanksgiving feast. So in our final segment this evening, uh, we're going to branch out and talk about food. We're going to talk about the people who grow it and harvest it, the challenges they face, and the community-centered solutions that some farmers have developed that, again, stand in stark contrast to big ag and its corporate monoculture. Uh, now joining us are, are two farmers, Elaine Hartley and Russell Brain, co-owners of Park Hill Orchard uh, here in East Hampton, uh, Massachusetts, a uh, also longtime friends of the independent Elaine and Russell, welcome to WBAI radio. Thank you, John. And so just starters, uh, um, uh, Elaine here at Park Hill, y'all grow over 90 varieties of perennial fruits and apples are your biggest crop, which you're busy harvesting right now. And I'm glad I can pitch in a little bit Uh, before we go into some of the issues around farming these days, can you just sort of describe the, the the work cycle of your year of what uh, goes into running a farm and also the 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 cycle of the apple and um, from when it blossoms to when people uh, are able to put it in their mouth and uh, yeah just give us a sense of of, of that uh, farming uh, cycle that you all are so deeply immersed in sure so right now we're obviously in harvest uh, harvest time period being mid-october but the tree really starts set um setting fruit setting buds uh the year before this this season and then i think on our human terms um pruning is really when i see our season starting so the year before the tree is setting buds and preparing for what we're currently harvesting now um, we move into pruning and um, really opening up the tree to air and light and making um, you know, o- uh, environment to grow healthy apples and uh, clean apples in. Um, we move from we move from pruning to at the same time uh, the tree cycle really is bud you know moves into bud break and the sap begins flowing and the buds start opening up. Uh, which then moves into tree pollination. Uh, after tree pollination, we uh, on for our growing cycle, we start looking at thinning the thinning the trees again. We're looking at air and light and trying to open up the trees and um, and um, sort of adjust for the amount of 
uh, the amount of fruit that a tree can carry based on like how much carbohydrates, how much sunlight it's getting. Um, and right around then, uh, as, as we, we begin, the apples start growing and we start moving towards harvesting. And as we're harvesting, the tree is actually moving into dormancy. So there's really kind of two growth, two cycles going on. It's the cycle that we are, we have as humans and the cycle the tree is going through. And, um, just when, just I'm say this on air, when, when you speak, um, if you could just speak a little bit closer to the mic, Elaine, I know you and John are sharing the mic. So happy, happy to see you there together in, in, in mass, but, um, moving on now. So tell, um, tell us a little bit about why it's better to eat local food, locally sourced food. Um, why is somebody? I, I can take a shot at that one. This is Russell. Um, Hi, Russell. Hi, scale Russell. Scale is really an issue with uh, with food. The scale of how it's grown. We we're a small farm, uh, owner operated, meaning that we are here doing the work every day. And farms like ours practically never get anyone sick. Uh, large corporate farms and where they commingle the products are where they have that problem. So in a way, you know, it's it's safer. Um, the, the main thing is that uh, at this scale, we can do a lot of uh, what's called cultural practices, meaning things other than spraying. So in the big industry, pretty much if you can't spray your way out of the problem, then they don't do anything about it. And so we have a lot of other options, like, for instance, in weed management. We can do mechanical weed control instead of using uh, harsh uh, herbicides, for, for instance, and um, we can hand thin the fruit rather than uh, than spray uh, uh, chemical thinners on them. So um, the other thing is when you buy locally, your money jingles around the local economy. I think there's been some studies on it that the uh, two or three times the money spent, it doesn't just get shipped instantly out of town when you spend it. So it, uh, it helps the local economy and it uh, supports jobs. Uh, we have a a fairly high minimum wage here in Massachusetts, and we pride ourselves in growing uh, um, healthy, valuable fruit that, that we can, um, you know, pay our employees well. Uh, and, you know, it builds community, breaking bread with your neighbors, uh, eating food, giving apples to the children in town makes bonds that, that are hard to make uh, in other ways that strongly. Okay. And we, of course, all get our food from somewhere. And in recent years, farmers markets have become an increasingly popular option, including for low-income shoppers who can now access more fresh, uh, healthy food. Uh, Can you talk about that a little more, Elaine? Sure. There are a number of programs that um, uh, help people access food, both at um, at farmers markets, farm stands, um, and a couple other venues. Um, the SNAP program is well known. Um, many people have EBT cards. Uh, most of the farmers markets that we attend, the uh, SNAP program is also matched with funds that come in from donors or have been raised by different groups. Uh, on top of that, we're here in Massachusetts, and the um, there is a program called the Healthy Incentives Program that puts between 40 to $80 back onto your SNAP card when you're purchasing fruits and vegetables from any farmer's market or farm stand. 
And just a note for our listeners in New York City, there are actually more than 130 farmers markets across the five boroughs supplied by farms in the greater New York City region, extending well up into the Hudson Valley where WBAI signal also reaches. If you Google New York City and farmers markets, you can find a map on nyc.gov. You can also go to Grow NYC for listings of all the farmers markets in the city. And since many of our listeners do care about eating healthy food, Russell, can you talk about what it means to run a low spray orchard and what people should know about spraying and when it's dangerous to and when it's not? I know you talked a little bit about some of the pesticides you don't use, but talk about when it's dangerous to spray and when it's not. Uh, We've lost our connection there for a moment. Um, Russell, uh, Amba was asking about when it's about spraying and when it's uh, ah. low, running a low spray orchard and when that's uh, so acceptable or not. We're lucky here, uh, partially because we're owner operated and because of scale, like I was mentioning before. But we pay close attention to the life cycle of all the pathogens and, and insects that might hurt an apple. And we use very soft sprays. Um, All of the hard sprays have been sunsetted out now. You hear a little bit in the news about uh, about certain ones that uh, that um, came out of retirement or not. But there are a new class of protective uh, crop protectants that are very soft, but you have to apply them in a very timely manner. You watch the. the different instar stages of the insects and, and you can uh, um, protect your apples while leaving, you know, literally hundreds of different species walking around the trees. Um, apple orchards used to have nothing living on the trees, but nowadays, um, you know, just like Rachel, Rachel Carson pointed out in silent spring, bugs eating bugs is more powerful than any spray that will ever be made. And we fully employ um, uh the, the insects that, that get rid of the ones that we don't like. So all that means that we have to leave a lot of insects alive. It's called um, basically fresh market growing is what we do. And uh, it's, it's sort of the new way. Now, where it's going is very interesting. We're in a, a state program right now doing um, what's called attract and kill, which means that you attract the uh, the insects that eat apples off the trees, and you and you deal with them in the grass or or nearby trees, and never spray the trees at all. So that's pretty interesting, and that's that's where it's going. So rest assured that farmers are working diligently and as quickly as possible to uh, clean up our food supply as much as possible. And we we just have. Uh, one more minute uh, at most here before we have to wrap up. But Elaine, one thing that you've done here at Park Hill that's really fascinating is you've made this a community hub and you even have a annual uh, art exhibit and an art trail with 30 original art installations. And there's a jury that judges the entries that come from all over the Northeast. Uh, just real quickly, can you talk about why you have made this extra effort when farming itself is a lot of work? Sure. Um, I think farming is a lot about community and sharing the environment, your land and the environment with the community. Our farm is under agricultural protection and the community around here put it under, helped um, fund that uh, change so that it was under agricultural protection. Um, 
And so it's a part of sharing and it's a part of building the community and having a place where people um, not only enjoy food, but enjoy each other and enjoy um, the beauty all around. Okay. Uh, Thanks. Thank you again to Elaine Hartley and Russell Brain, uh, our farmer friends uh, jo- uh, joining us uh, uh, this evening. Of course, uh, we have a lot of uh, similar kind of farms all up in the Hudson Valley and in the New York City region that serve those farmers markets. And we also have uh, hundreds of community gardens in the five boroughs of, of New York City. And uh, so uh, there's so many ways uh, we can get a uh, healthier food for ourselves. And it doesn't just have to be uh, a bougie thing that uh, rich people can uh, partake in. And um, so, uh, but anyway, how we'll have to leave it there. Um, and, um, but before we go, uh, a, a quick reminder, Amba, for our listeners. A reminder to everybody that there are more great shows coming up on WBAI this evening, starting with the WBAI Evening News with Paul DiRenzo at 6 p.m. After that, there's Extension Rebellion Radio on at 6.30. After that, we only want the world at 7 p.m., out FM at 8, and on the count, Prison and Criminal Justice Radio at 9 o'clock. And one more reminder, when you give to WBAI, you make the Independent News Hour and all these other shows possible Keep the community and community radio 212-209-2950. Again, that is 212-209-2950 or go to give number two WBAI.org where you can sign up to become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 per month and receive awesome special premiums. We'll be preempted next week, but we'll be back at the same time in two weeks. Thank you for joining us this evening. And thanks also to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. This is Shake Sugar Sugary by Elizabeth Cotton as we sign off tonight. Stunning.